Father, I thank you for these saints here at Trinity Reformed Church. The Bible says you've determined the appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation. I'm thankful that you have placed each one of us here in this time and in this place for your purposes. I thank you for the, the privilege of calling these people brothers and sisters. Thank you for the unity we share in Christ. We come before you this morning to, to plead for your abundant grace on this community and on this congregation. We ask you that you would give us the energy to labor for your glory that much fruit would be born of our labor. Father, we desire that Trinity Reformed Church be a bulwark of the true gospel in this valley. We look to you, as we talked about this morning, to, to accomplish that. So, Father, I pray that as we turn to your word now this morning, it would be uh, a service to encourage and energize your people. I pray that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would convict us those things in our lives which hinder us and cause us to stumble. And uh, please strengthen the faith of each soul in this room as we journey together toward that homeland which we eagerly await. Father, I pray all these things in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. May be seated. First Peter, so far we've seen this unfathomable glory of the status that we've been called to as Christians. In chapter 1, we saw that we were elect and adopted children of God, uh, that we've been given this redemption that even the, the prophets wished they could have known more about, the angels, it says, long to look into what we have. We were called the children of this, this judge of the, the universe. And two weeks ago, we talked about the honor of identifying with Christ. Though the world may despise and hate us, the, the honor is for us, and the shame is for the unbeliever. Last week, we saw the, the glory of our identity as the people of God set apart by God, for God. So we have it pretty good. We have it really good as Christians. I think if we take a step back and look at the big picture, God aside, no other being in the universe than Christians has a higher, more glorious calling. We've also seen plainly that this glory which is ours is primarily a future glory. We're headed toward an inheritance which will be ours when Jesus comes back. Peter is very clear about this. And so we, as the Old Testament patriarchs did, we are seeking that better homeland. Thus, Peter describes us here as aliens and exiles in the world. So the way I see it, there's two dangers 
for an exile in the world. Two dangers for a sojourner going through this world. Uh, the first is that we can forget that we are sojourners and kind of integrate entirely into this culture of which is our own, only our temporary home. I was reminded of this uh, when the Wilkes came uh, here. Mandy has been here for 20 years, and she is a very British lady. <laughs> she was telling us at dinner time she's, she carries a green card. She's not a citizen, and she said, why? I'm British. <laughs> that, that's her identity. Why change? That's her nationality, and she happily identifies with it, even though she's fully integrated into the society. Uh, the other extreme that a sojourner can fall into is to have complete disrespect and for our temporary home. To just kind of you know throw the trash out the car window. Who cares? It's not my place. It's not my problem. We've all seen the the videos of kind of in, immigrants who are attacking people. You know, I saw one of a guy kicking a lady down the stairs. And, and those types of videos, we see them and we somehow assume that, well, now that whole country is a country of thugs, which is a wrong thing to assume. <laughs> but when we act poorly in another country, we then uh, put a black mark on our homeland. So as Christians, we are not in this world, we are not at home. But we are called to walk well as sojourners in this world. So on the one hand, we're called to walk through this world without becoming part of it. And at the same time, we're to live respectfully in this world, which is not our home, so as to represent our heavenly country well and to represent our king, whom we serve well. So let's begin by looking at this first sort of temptation, this first extreme from verse 11, that temptation to be come citizens of our temporary home. Verse 11. I, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Peter here says, I urge you to abstain. This word in the Greek has kind of two elements. There's this pleading element. Please, I, I urge you, I want you to abstain. There's also this element in the word of authority. We see on the one hand, he's pleading with them. Some translations even, I think the New King James and King James says, I beg you to abstain. He earnestly desires, please do this, please abstain. On the other hand, he is telling them to do this. As an apostle, he comes to them with authority and he's imploring them, exhorting them, this is important to Peter, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And the reason it's important is because he cares about them. Peter isn't here kind of barking orders at plebes. He calls them beloved. Beloved. His urging here carries that loving urgency of, of a grandfather writing a letter to his grandchildren or, or an uncle to his nephew. Peter's concern is here that these beloved saints do not conform in their practices to the practices of their temporary home. 
to paraphrase what I think Peter's saying, he's saying, as foreigners and exiles, you will be under enormous pressure to conform, to identify yourselves with that country you are temporarily inhabiting. But I plead with you, do not conform, do not adopt their customs. This was a huge problem in the Old Testament. The Israelites, as they passed through the wilderness, constantly being told, don't become like the nations. And what do they do? They keep becoming like the nations. During the Babylonian captivity, God tells Israel, you know, set up your lives in Babylon. Build houses, plant gardens, have kids, get married. But he doesn't say, become a Babylonian. He always holds out this promise that one day they will go home. I stumbled across some articles this week. Apparently, archaeologists have found tablets that are basically like business receipts from the Jews during that time in Babylon. Babylon. I always think of their time there as like, you know, they're under great oppression and slavery and just being beat as as exiles every day. That's the mindset I have. But really, they were pretty comfortable. They were businessmen and merchants, and they lived their lives in Babylon. They were contributing to society. Now, it would have been easy for them in their comfort to conform, to just become another one of the Babylonians and forget about the land from where they came. And in fact, uh, when the remnant returned to Jerusalem, many did stay behind. So it isn't hard to get caught up in, in the distractions of the world, even to the point that we forget the homeland. We, we can get used to the comforts of this life, and we forget that we are indeed exiles passing through. And before we know it, we're not only in the world, but we are of the world. Around the time I was writing this, I saw some photos of some extended family of mine, and it just caught me because of the timing of what I was writing, that this would be a good case study. So these family members are Christian people. They're ministry-minded people, faithful Christians. And these photos, they were happily enjoying life. And they were at Disneyland, taking pictures with Minnie Mouse, (laughs) the Disneyland experience on the rides. And I thought this this question popped into my head again because I was writing this at the, that time. Does that type of thing qualify as as conforming to the, the foreign identity? In other words, is enjoying the fun things the world has to offer a sinful step toward worldliness? Most of our responses would be, of course not. <laughs> but just to muddy the waters a little bit more, um, I kind of think about the Jews, like all piling into the minivan to go down to like the hanging gardens rides. Doesn't that strike you as strange? <laughs> they should be home writing dirges about and lamenting that they can't be back in their homeland, right? Now, of course, my answer is, of course it's not wrong to enjoy a trip to the amusement park as a Christian. I think all of that is is a part of living life as an exile. There are many good things which we can enjoy in the world while still not being a part of the world. And I don't know, maybe that's not an issue for you, but I, I tend to be a moper and a bemoaner and a dirge singer rather than the amusement park guy. You know, I'm stuck here while some lucky souls 
like R.C. Sproul, me and Michael like to joke about this, that he, he got to go home and we're jealous. That, that tends to be my mindset. But God has given us much provision as aliens and exiles, just like he did with the Jews. Set up your homes, but don't become a Babylonian. The problem comes is when we let those gifts begin to morph our identity, when we begin to forget who we are, and when we begin to prefer that, that foreign land to the homeland. So that's why Peter here exhorts with such urgency. And he tells us, these are passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. So there's more going on here than just kind of ethical theorizing or moral discernment. This is a spiritual issue. There's a war going on. The passions of the flesh are waging war against the, our souls. Now some, some people think this is the Roman 7 dichotomy between the, the soul and the flesh, the spirit and the flesh. Um, other people think he's referring more to the external pressures of evil pressing upon the Christian. And I think the latter is closer to Peter's intended meaning here because he's talking about life as a sojourner in an exile and he says, abstain from those things that seem to be pressing on you, these passions of the flesh. This pressure isn't hard to see even in our own day. It's the battle we fight every day. You know, false ideologies of pluralism and secularism is this the stream we swim against. Or, or greed, for example. Consumeristic ads saying you deserve this, you owe yourself this. Sexual sin and pure images forced upon our eyes. Or the more subtle lies. Man is basically good. We can fix society on our own. Love means unreserved acceptance of every idea. These and, and many other things, they make up the temperature of the water in which we as Christians swim. And if we're not careful, if we're not fighting that battle, we will always drift toward equilibrium. So to Peter, it is vitally important that we never forget that we are not of this world. He earnestly desires that believers remember that we are sojourners and we hail from a heavenly country, a, a higher country. So he says, I implore you, abstain. So that's the first temptation, the first extreme, is, is to get caught up in this world that is not our home, this other land to which we do not belong. So going the other way, Peter now suggests that our abstinence impacts the world, how the world views us. And so we're, we're to respect the country of our temporary residence. We're to represent our heavenly Father and our heavenly home well here, while we are here. So verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's one problem I have with the ESV. It's that they often translate participles as imperatives, especially in First Peter, which to me destroys the beautiful interconnectedness of this text, even if it does make it more readable. 
So what ends up happening is Peter's thoughts become kind of a list of commands rather than a flow of thought. Um, so I'm digressing into translational nerddom there. So all of that to say, I, I prefer the translation, abstain from your passions, the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul, while keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Because verse 12 is an outflowing of verse 11. There's more to the story in Peter's mind than simple abstinence. We're ambassadors, and thus we have a responsibility to represent the homeland. It'd be strange, the Olympics have been going on, it'd be strange if in the opening ceremonies everyone walked in with a South Korean flag wearing South Korean clothing. Each country is expected to represent the land from which they hail. And it would be awfully strange if they didn't. There's a pride there. We love our country and we want to represent her here well in the Olympics. It reminds me of cool runnings. <laughs> These guys, the Jamaican bobsled team, and they see the Swedes and they're so good. And they start, when in their practice runs, they start counting in Swedish rather than <laughs> being Jamaican. And they finally realize, we're not Swedish, we're Jamaican. <laughs> so, Peter, Peter, as I said, has labored through this letter to show us that ours is an honorable calling, a high calling. And now he is telling us that our actions need to be honorable. They need to accord with the calling. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So the word Gentiles here could be confusing. And we've discussed before that Peter's probably writing to mixed churches made mostly of Gentiles, maybe a few Jews. Um, but this word is often used in, in the New Testament, even as it was in the Old Testament, to refer to the people who are not the people of God. Especially here in this context when he's talking about sojourning and exiling. So abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Uh, that's kind of, Peter states it like that negatively. Now he's stating it positively. You are to act honorably. The Greek word here is kalos, uh, which is usually means good. It can be beautiful. It, the idea is, is an outward beauty or attractiveness. So our conduct among the Gentiles is to be lovely. Philippians says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 1.27. So that could mean any number of things. You know, that absence that we talked about earlier is included, but also honesty in business, work ethic, kindness, empathy, acts of mercy, faithful citizenship, love of the family. As an example, early Christians were accused of a lot of weird things. Cannibalism, because people misunderstood the Lord's Supper. Atheism, uh, just general ignorance. And one major thing people were concerned about with Christians is that they would be subversive, because Christians are all about this kingdom. And if you're about this kingdom that's not Caesar's kingdom, you're going to cause problems. You're not going to be good citizens. So one of the first Christian apologists, Justin Martyr, responds to these things. Um, he's writing to the emperor. 
And he says, okay, first of all, the kingdom we look for is not of this world. So we're not trying to supplant you as, some, as the human king. In fact, God puts you there. He says, and when you hear that we look for a kingdom, you suppose, without making any inquiry, that we speak of a human kingdom, whereas we speak of that which is of God. Secondly, he, he says, Christians stand before God. Therefore, we are some of your best and most virtuous citizens. He says, more than, than all other men, we are your helpers and allies in promoting peace, seeing that we hold this view, that it is alike impossible for the wicked, the covetousness, the conspirator, and for the virtuous to escape the notice of God. So I think what Peter is getting at here when he calls us to conduct ourselves honorably before the Gentiles is that we, not not that we try to make ourselves look good before the world so that we don't stick out as strange or unusual. Christians have always stuck out as strange and unusual even to the point of being burned at the stake. But we, we are to live good, moral, upright lives consistent with our calling. Peter gives us the reason for that here in verse 12. He says, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So I think sometimes we think if we live honorable, attractive, godly lives in the world, we'll somehow earn everyone's respect that, that they'll no longer speak ill of us. But notice Peter says here, When they speak against you, as evildoers. It's going to happen. No matter how righteous, moral, upright, and faithful we are, we will be despised and hated by the world. And they will think and they will speak ill of us. I like what first, or John says in First John 3, 1. He says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know God. So the world will never get Christians. John says they don't know us, they, don't, they won't understand us. So when we will not join them in their practices, they, they think us strange. You, know, you won't go out and get drunk? How antisocial of you. We don't think sex outside of marriage is right? How prudish. We think marriage is one man and one woman? How uncharitable. But we have to remember that it's not merely a problem of, of intellectual sin here. They don't know us because they don't know God. Amen. It's a spiritual problem. As long as their foolish hearts are darkened, they will not understand the things we say and do. So I want to touch on one more related pastoral concern here before finishing up verse 12. I think when we talk about this distinction between us and the world, we sometimes forget... We're not to hate the citizens of our temporary residency. You know, secularism is annoying. Abortionism is enraging. Radical Islam is scary. Coexist bumper stickers are confounding. But we have to remember these people who hold these ideologies are made in the image of God. They're wicked because they're spiritually dead, deaf, and blind. So as, as one preacher I was listening to put it as an example, we should care about the eradication of Islam 
not the eradication of Muslims. These people who antagonize and persecute Christians are lost in sin, but they're the ones who we're called to bring the gospel message to, or to love them. So Peter does say here that our honorable, honorable behavior will have an impact. He says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So some interpreters take this day of visitation to mean on the day when God visits the unbeliever and regenerates their soul. Um, That could be what Peter meant, but I think we need to be careful to acknowledge that though our good deeds reflect the gospel, our good deeds are not the gospel. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. As I said last week, we as Christians primarily bring a message to the world. That's not to say that a consistent life isn't useful in evangelism or that dishonorable actions don't damage our witness. But we need to be careful to not fall into that old trap of my life is my testimony. Good deeds cannot tell anybody about the seriousness of sin or the blood of Jesus shed for sin or the gracious gift of imputed righteousness by faith alone. Only our lips can communicate that message. So another interpretation of that day of visitation is the day of judgment, essentially. The Bible never really uses the phrase day of visitation anywhere to refer to conversion. It's almost always referring to the arrival of the Messiah, and particularly to his second coming and the day of final judgment. So more likely, I think what Peter is getting at here is vindication. There will come a day when all will be made right, and that is the same day in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So on that day, the scoffers will have to say, yes, we were wrong. We were wrong to accuse them of being antisocial, prudish, arrogant. We were wrong to say they were unloving. God's standards have always been right. Some who scoffed will have been saved in the meantime, and they will get to say that from the flock of the sheep. Others, it will be too late. Uh, Peter says in, in chapter 1, verse 7, First Peter, that the tested genuineness of our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I believe, based on this verse, that part of that will be this vindication that I'm talking about. On that day, voices who once cried in rebellion against the Lordship of Jesus will finally have to join us in saying, Jesus Christ is King. So, to summarize here, on the one hand, we as sojourners and aliens are to be aware of those dangers that, that we can easily identify with the world, with our temporary home. On the other hand, we are to live honorable lives in the world as representatives of our heavenly country and of its king. So, In, in order to encourage that in us, uh, I just want to read from, from Revelation. This is a beautiful depiction of what we have as our eternal inheritance. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Praise God.